everybody. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Today, I've got to talk with <laughs> Edward Sharp. No, Alex Ebert. Alex is the lead singer of the Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And Alex, also the his recent self-titled album... I really, I, I don't know how to talk in music industry jargon. I really don't. Uh, so I apologize. But Alex Ebert, if you Google Alex Ebert Truth, he's written a song that's so fucking good. Uh, I'm going to play it for you here between the intro and the talk. But we, let me just paint this. Let me just paint this fucking picture for you. Alex, in this talk you're gonna hear not the best audio and there's a reason it's because alex was taking a bath (laughs) he was he had gotten sick and he decided to record the podcast from the bath so really you should feel honored that this talk is just a very intimate talk with alex ebert because he's fucking bathing uh so you can imagine he's got this hilarious red glow of some infrared heater on his face and he's sitting in the bath talking to me and we had a really great talk we talk about intuition we talk about other people's influence on our ability to hear our own intuition we talk about our fuck i don't even know what we talk about in this podcast it's such a jam and we really fucking super hit it off and so i uh you just gotta listen to it and so i'm gonna play for you now the uh alex's song truth and then at the end we'll listen to home but uh thanks alex for coming on and if you guys like this show consider supporting it on patreon there's a hundred percent listener supported podcast it's patreon.com slash airy in the air. You can do it for as little as $5 a month, but I also give free coaching calls to my top tier patrons. And it's not a coaching call like you're used to. It's very different. Dialogos. Um, so without further ado, here's Alex's song, Truth, and my talk with the very eclectic, very wise, super fun Alex Ebert.
Commodores on the horizon Now which is the future you're choosing before you gon' die And I'll tell you about a secret I've been undermining Every little light in this world come from the vibe Say you're my love, say you're my home Till my chin back, slit my throat Take a bath in my blood, get to know me All out of my secrets All my enemies are turning into my teachers Because life's blind and no way dividing What's yours or mine when everything's shining And your darkness is shining My darkness is shining Have faith Alex, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Okay, so I just have some some questions here. <laughs> the first question comes from my dear best friend neighbor, and she's just so curious why you're Alex Ebert, but it's Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Yeah, I've asked myself that a lot. Um, well. So when I was Alex Ebert, which I still am, but when I, uh, before I was doing the Edward Sharp thing, um, I, yeah, I'd lost my sense of myself. Mm. Um, I was in a band I started called, I'm a, it's funny, you know, what, what names do to someone, but I started a band called I'm a Robot. And, um, and eventually I did feel like a robot. We were in, on a major label and I was making songs for the sake, I'll never forget my, my um our, our manager this like big shot manager came in i was like 22 or something and and she goes um you guys if you guys want to run with the big boys you need to take it up 18 notches 18 notches some arbitrary notch system she had 
I was so offended that I went home and like, I, I think I, I stormed out of the meeting. I went home and wrote like an intentional two hit songs. Like, fuck you, here are two hit songs, you fucking piece of shit, fuck you, fuck. I'm, I'm 18 notches, here's like a bazillion notches. I'm drowning them. And we got a record deal two weeks later, basically. Um, like we had a bidding war, but <clears throat> even though that was sort of like this like moment for me, it set me off on the wrong path. I started writing songs for the wrong reason. Uh -huh. um, and uh, four years later, I was like completely depleted of instinct. Um, like totally depleted of instinct. I, I had uh, moved in. I, I was doing all these things that were depleted of instinct. Well, my instinct just went away. It kept telling me like, mm. leave this relationship, leave this thing, don't do this thing, don't get that produced. And I just kept not listening. And eventually I remember essentially waking up, no longer hearing my instinct, almost like a dejected kid who'd been tired of being shooed away. And it just stopped. And uh, it, that sent me into this incredible, like, death spiral. Uh, I became genuinely suicidal, and um, and I knew the only way to get to get out of it was to literally just walk away from absolutely everything. And I did. And during that time, I started writing this, uh, or just around that time, I'd been writing this story about a character named Edward Sharp. And there was a mathematics I was developing called magnetic zeros. And I just started a fucking, what was that thing called? MySpace called Edward Sharp and the magnetic zeros. And then for me, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is it was, it was sort of like an escape back to myself. Mm. Um, so for me, the whole Edward Sharp thing, I always got really annoyed when people are like the character of Edward Sharp that he plays. It's like, man, no. The character of Alex Ebert I was playing. Hmm. That's the story. This is this is sort of a return to myself. Um, yeah, it was always it was always interesting to get so much um, sort of consternation about the whole Edward Short persona. Um, not to mention, you know, probably as you know, like being up on a fucking high wire. You can't be thinking about other shit when you're up on a fucking like. Hi, why, you, you can't be like, I'm going to be, I'm impersonating so-and-so up here. When you're on stage, it's very similar. There's no place that I'm more me than on stage. I put the mask on when I get off stage. In fact, any great fucking performer will tell you the mask goes on after they get off stage. Mm -hmm. On stage, it, the big challenge is, can you take your mask off? And it doesn't matter if you're playing a character whose name is Shlamoobly Bloobly and, and, and they live in a fucking hole in the earth and that has nothing to do with your life. The only way that character is gonna to come to life is if you get naked, like emotionally. And um, so yeah, anyway, the whole Edward Sharp thing is just an artifice to express the, you know, what's running through me truly. And in the last couple of years, it stopped running through me truly. So I stopped touring. You know, I'll never, I'm trying to never make that mistake again, where I overextend my visit within my, you know, inertia. Wow. <clears throat> the idea that 
when you're on stage is the time that you have the mask off is very interesting. I've been kind of making the analogy lately that when you're actually like giving your gift, when you're actually like doing your thing, when you're actually like making art, you can't simultaneously be tuned into that thing and do impression management. You can't, right? Like you can't, you can't be concerned about how other people are receiving it and simultaneously do it. No, and that gets into the status saying that the whole reason for the mask is to sort of modulate and, and, uh, uh, and mitigate uh, status anxiety and, and, and how things are being received, as you say. And those are things we can do very well when we're off stage. But if you're trying to do them on stage, you're going to have a horrible experience um, that is just going to be fraught with the most treacherous anxiety. And if you're, you know, and, and then if your life is in peril or something, like, like you're doing an actual stunt, you can't remotely think about that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, the flow state when you're, body is on the line is it's very visceral but it's funny how when your perceived status is on the line it's a similar level of like um self-preservation like animalistic self-preservation that kicks in absolutely because the well they're both fear of death i mean in Mm -hmm. my opinion this is a controversial opinion but, um, but uh, status anxiety is at its root, a fear of death by ostracization, mm-hmm. um, which is baked into us for fucking millennia. So, or, you know, forever. Um, and it hasn't gone away just because the last 20,000 years have been sort of civilized. I mean, even ancient Greece, their whole, they came up with that word ostracization and it was like an actual like black bead that you tossed in 5,000 people at a time would toss in and say whether or not uh, someone should be ostracized. They would throw these little black beads in. Actually, the the black beads themselves were called like, not Ocetra, that's a caviar, but something like that. That, Something about like related to ostracization. Um, It's still, I mean, being canceled. I mean, we're still practicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this above the law and beneath it and um and in our minds we're practicing this all the time and the, you know like for instance when you think about when you get embarrassed your cheeks flush with red mm-hmm. your body gets fucking throbbed with adrenaline as if you just jumped out of a plane <laughs> like what the fuck Adre- like em- embarrassment is literally a survival mechanism mm-hmm. that your body is like don't do that yeah. Don't get, don't make a fool of yourself. Like, you know, I, I'm having to work, you know, I'm looking at my face in this thing. I'm all red. I'm in the bath. I look like a fucking idiot, I, you know? And so I have to work through this whole thing and then I have to, to make it make sense in my head, you know? And, and um, these are things that we're negotiating all day long. Um, but yeah, there's fear of death. Yeah. This is like the, the gatekeeper self. This is the ego, the part of us that it's crazy to think of how socially evolved we are. 
Because the idea of jumping off a cliff being scary is seems so normal. And the idea that saying the wrong thing, having a fear of saying the wrong thing mm. is like as visceral as physical death and dismemberment is a fucking wild. That is a wild uh, little development of evolution. Yeah, I think it's really I think it's really crucial. I think when Adam Smith was talking about the invisible hand that runs all things, he wasn't actually talking about necessarily self-interest. He's, he's talking about status anxiety. I mean, I, I think that it's the most undergirding, fundamental sort of organizer of humanity, um, which gets us into the cool talk because cool promises to mitigate that status uh -huh. anxiety um, and promises to sort of like leverage ourselves out of it by way of supposed, you know, a supposed giving of no fucks. Um, and, it's, and it's a brilliant inversion um, whereby being in a socially asymmetrical state, so being on the outside or being a loner gets converted into status points, whereas previously that was strictly a designation for like near ostracization, total mm -hmm. anxiety, but inverts that position of, of asymmetricality uh, to be a, an advantage um, that competes, an advantage that competes with the pure raw wealth, you know, to be, to be really cool. I mean, that's, that's a legitimate, uh, you know, social status now. Yeah, and almost currency. Totally. That makes you rich. Yeah. Being super <laughs> cool. Yeah. And what a fleeting and weird thing it is to chase because it seems it's never really obvious as to what people will designate as that thing that is so cool. Yeah, well, there's... So there's, 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 a, there's a broad predictability to it in the sense that whatever is really lame will, is being primed to be cool. Ah. So um, mom jeans, like, you know, you could bet your life that like three years ago, you knew that mom jeans were going to come back in a big way and all the hipsters would be wearing mom jeans or that the valley in LA on the other side of Hollywood would eventually become cool because it was so lame or... Um, you know, uh, there's, and then likewise, you can predict that anything that's cool will eventually become lame vis-a-vis -vis, uh, too much saturation of the mainstream. Yeah. Um, however, there's a, what, what's a really interesting development to me is, oh, and by the way, yeah, there's like, I, you know, I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up in the 90s, there was all this sort of like retro everything was about making fun of the 70s. The 70s were like the least cool thing in uh -huh. the 80s. But then by the 90s, the 70s, because they were lame, they were sort of like this parody, parodyable sort of nightclub uh -huh. thing to come do these 70s nights. And then all of a sudden, like everyone at my school were, was wearing bell bottoms. I remember when Dazed and Confused came out, I did not know whatsoever that that was a period piece. That was my high school oh, in the wow. 90s. Because everyone was was imitating, you know, like what what had been recently uncooled. Um, but anyway, there's a. Uh, I was going to say there's 
an interesting development, speaking of the 90s, where, you know, you had this thing called selling out in the 90s, um, where if something got too cool and had been mainstreamed, um, it was generally no longer cool. There wasn't yet an irony developed to like mm. really love Beyonce, even <laughs> after she had done a Pepsi commercial. Uh -huh. Back in the 90s, you could not do, only Michael Jackson and Ray Charles could get away with a Pepsi commercial. Um, back then, if you had, you know, Kurt Cobain would have been like, forget about it. Yeah. And, um, and today there's this whole capitalist irony to everything um, where Kendrick Lamar can be doing an Amex commercial and remain cool because there's some, well, obviously there's sort of like, you know, the black excellence thing, but, but more than that, there's now this sort of like ironic distance as Zizek would call it, which is just, which allows us to get away with anything ironically. So you can do the fucking Pepsi commercial or the whatever commercial and just claim irony or claim ironic distance. So cool. So I, so that puts cool in a weird state because no longer when you th cross the threshold of, of total mass acceptance, are you instantly sort of like on the waning edge of cool um, because of this sort of like commoditization of cool, which cool itself was the commoditization of dissent. So now the whole thing is almost is starting to feel meaningless to me, the cool thing. It's, it's, mm. it's interesting. Yeah. That is, I, the idea that, that the things that are lame are being primed to be cool. Yeah. That's a really interesting concept. And, and the idea of like bell bottoms in the seventies coming up back in the nineties and then us being able to look at what, was cool and is now lame because it was so saturated it's only two decades until the you know a couple generations and they're gonna find that as cool again this is like the thrifting you know i live in oregon so like portland is like one of the kind of like the hotbeds for like the next trend that they'll find in the thrift store that then everyone will want and then and then gabana will like be producing the things that look like that Oh yeah, and, and now I, I mean, in the the most obvious thing right now that's interesting to me is is the whole ugly chic. Ugly chic is basically taking the most perennial lame thing, which is ugliness, um, you know, quote unquote, and making anything that's ugly is now cool. So you look at like Kanye's new shoes. Like if it's not ugly, it's not beautiful now, and that's the most like intense reversal i think and it's happening wow. happening everywhere i don't know if you're if you if you're seeing what i'm saying but um, but it's, uh, I, it's when, you, when you when you yeah when you say it the thing that comes to mind is zoolander yes well dude that whole derelict campaign yes <laughs> the derelict camp i can <laughs> yes the whole derelict campaign is happening now i mean so kamala harris's uh, daughter is like some fashion maven. Uh, and I just saw a quote recently where they're like, what's your style? And she's like, ugly. She literally just said ugly chic. 
um, it's a whole, you know, there was heroin chic where you invert sort of like desperate destitution into sort of like this beautiful thing. But now this is just taking like, that wasn't enough. We ran out of those things. And now we're just going straight to ugly. And, you know, there's something really beautiful about stuff that has been perennially sort of, you know, uh, marginalized as ugly. Um, and I think it's really in some ways positive, but an interesting, an interesting occurrence because of it is that what was beautiful is now ugly. Not all, not always across the board, but like, you know, like if you wear something that's like sort of classically beautiful, one of the hipsters, New Orleans is by the way, extremely hip, like painfully fucking hip. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of at the nexus of this sort of like, you know, ugly chic, like you can't, you know, like beautiful is ugly and ugly is beautiful. So I'm very sort of like attuned to it. But um, yeah, if you go out wearing like a classically, you know, beautiful thing or someone happens to like look classically beautiful, um, points against, <laughs> points against instantly. You know. <laughs> Which is a funny way to put it because it's like this like social ledger, this like social scorekeeping, which I have a very different experience with this cool game and this cool ledger. And it's like, you know, people see that I've, I've recently set the American Highline record for length, a 4,004 foot long or 4,400 foot long slack line that I walked across first try no falls. And, and it's so for people who aren't, 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 who don't know, I'm sure everyone who listens to your thing know, but for my benefit then, the slack line is literally a rubber band, is it? Like it's, or it's like a, like what, like a, what, what is it made out of? So the one, these, the really long ones. So like the one that you see in the park or in your yard is made out of nylon and is okay. kind of stretchy, a little bit bouncy. Okay. When they get really, really long, we use a certain kind of webbing that is designed to be like not elastic at all okay. so that it like will stay put. So the one that I'm using is made out of Dyneema and polyester. It's very expensive. It's very low stretch. And so, um, yeah, the slack line, it still has a lot of like play in it. It still has like yeah. stretch in it and a it's still awful, right? a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because it's so cool when people see it, but it gets a little less cool when they realize I'm tethered to it. Exactly. <laughs> they're like oh, are you tethered to it i'm like yeah they're like oh, no. yeah exactly. you can't die i kind of wanted to watch you like i wanted to be afraid that you were gonna die yeah well, and that's, so there's that, well, that's a very old that's tethered to like punk rock that's a very that's that's actually a classic cool situation right uh-huh you know i mean because like the, the the rock climbers that are going up and doing the total solo like they're cooler than the guys that are like tied in exactly it's like a very distinct hierarchy of uh, of cool there and it's all to do with the presence of potential death it, yeah and it's also interesting how that relates to the perception of zero fucks because the yeah. free soloist he doesn't fucking care oh i could die yeah i don't give a fuck if i die zero fucks this is my like art this is like my moment you know like yeah. like that's like amazing and i've i've walked across many high lines without a harness on and 
never 4,000 fucking feet long, but um, it is a very interesting experience. And some of my closest friends are world record holders in, in free soloing high lines but yeah the the connection between the zero fucks mentality and like what a free soloist is at the very like root of his motivation that he doesn't care which is which is a misconception right like the it is a deep misconception because none of the soloists that i know or myself don't care it's not a zero fucks mentality it's like actually like a i'm I practice and think about this enough and I hone it enough that I'm not comfortable. I wouldn't say that I'm comfortable taking off my harness, but I'm capable of taking off my harness. Exactly. And there's a big difference between that. Yeah. yeah you don't want a sushi chef who, ha- who gives zero fucks. You know, of like an, not. an artist, an artist doesn't actually give zero fucks. It, it, in a sense, the zero fucks thing is mm. is a wild card that you can pull out if you have to. Like you know, I'm sure there comes a moment when you're climbing something um, or you're doing something, and there's the next move, and you don't know if you can make it, and you you might actually hurt yourself if you do it. And you have to balance that, you know, there, that you might need to pull out the zero fucks card um, for that moment. Uh-huh. And I know that I have those moments where it's like, you know, my voice will be fucked up. That's the worst. And, and the question is, do I go for the high note? <laughs> and, 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 and what I, and the card I have to pull out is the zero fucks thing where I'm like, okay, I don't care if I blow it. I don't mm-hmm. care if I blow it and everyone now, of course, my life's not on the line, but still all the adrenaline and uh-huh. the embarrassment, that stuff is still online. So I still have that odd fear of death. Um, of course, in the instance where you know you're not actually going to die, you can play around. I don't know what it's like in the, in the context of, um, you know, like imminent actual physical death. Yeah. Um, do you have those moments? It's That's interesting. I feel like the zero fucks card there is related directly to the status yeah it's like it's a zero fucks of like i don't care what you actually think right so yeah. it's like you still care about the performance or you care about the yes. the the moment but you just don't care about the status yes which is a really there is some like psychological health there's like a deep psychological health to that it's like a healthy detachment yeah, I'm much healthier on stage than off stage. You know, I'm 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 much freer. I'm much I'm much healthier. I'm much more expressed. I'm much happier. Ah. I dance more. <laughs> ah. You know what I mean? Because I have to get rid of, get rid of that card when I'm on the street. You know. Yeah, I just uh, everything kind of clamps back down. I don't give myself that permission. It's a permission thing. That's so interesting. Um, I'm curious because this kind of relates to like how people think it's less cool when they realize I'm tethered. Yeah. What is the, what is your, like the, the song that really, that everyone that I know knows 
Yeah. Do you hate that song? No. Do you, have you like, I guess my intuition is not that you would hate it, but, but that there is some like, for me, I don't want to do the same activity. Like I'm literally a professional in fucking multiple sports because like, I like what I like and I do it and then I get good at it. And then it's like, and then it's kind of a spectacle and people want to watch and they want me to make content about it and yada, yada. But like, I don't have to play the same song like ever. And there's been a couple of times actually where I've been hired to like, someone saw a photo that they liked and they were like, okay, we want you, we want this photo, but in our shoes. And I was like, okay, well, how about this one? This one's really cool. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. But like, we want that same fucking photo with our shoes. And we were like, okay. So we went and like reenacted the same adventure that we had already had that we would have never done again. Had they not demanded that we play that same exact song for them. Yeah. The repetition of magic, obviously Mm. for us, Right? Most people corrodes magic. I think that's actually one of the most amazing thing about uh, actors is that I've done a little bit of acting just because my, my in theater and, and also because I was becoming a, a, a film uh, maker, a director before I, uh, that's what I went to college for. So, you know, I'd volunteer and do some acting. The most difficult thing about it is when you nail something, you're like, oh, fuck. And then they're like, all right, great. Ah, there was some dust in the lens. Let's, let's run it back. And you're like, what? Run, run the magic back? <laughs> and it's very difficult. Uh, you know, like that's almost like a muscle into its, uh, unto itself. But yeah, the, the, look, I don't mind this. I, I love the song. I love that the song, people get married to the song. People yes, they do in love to the song it's meant so much to people to Mm. fathers and daughters to lovers to everybody has like had some sort of relationship with the song even it's like i'll turn that song off or you know a funny relationship to the song um the problem is more circumstantial in that that song is a duet and the relationship my relationship with the uh with jade who i sang that song with um for a number of reasons uh got difficult um you know she was dating the piano player and then my guitar player and 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 i was just like um trying to sort of stomach through it and it and it and it got it just got messy Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually she you know so there would be there would be times when like you know i don't know for whose benefit but where you know, she's basically can't look at me while I'm, while I'm, while we're singing the song. So we're singing home and I'm like, fuck. And so now, but, and you know, and she, she since left the band and, um, and it's still our most popular song. So how do you do that? Do you just go get another girl? That's fucking corny. So I try and sing it with the audience. I'm like, all right, guys, here we go. This is the song. We're going to sing it back and forth because thank God you guys know the lyrics. Most of you know it well enough that we can get away with this. But it's never the same. And I wish that Jade and I were the ones singing it. Um, so I have this contextual difficulty with it where it's like, you know, people want us to play that song. Um, but it's like this gimme that is not, we're not performing it at its maximum capacity. Wow. Yeah. You can't roll back the magic. 
No. No, you can't. You can't. That's like trying to, you know, do the scene yourself with, uh, you know, play both characters. It's um, it's difficult, and it brings up all that all that stuff. But I think, yeah. I think because of the way that that song, like, if I had been sitting around the way I was when I was 24, saying "fuck you" to my manager and thinking about what's the most, like, what's the most pop song I could I could make right now, and home for whatever reason happened to be that song I might look back at it and just be like you know rolling my eyes but that whole era was when was right when I had let go of all of that when I had to refine myself I got rid of my cell phone my car my relationship I dropped out of AA I stopped using the computer I had little like notepad on my wall on my door and if you needed to get in touch with me you had to come by my place and leave a note um, I tried to remember like what it was like when I was five before I had ever, mm. you know, gotten ingrained in the status anxiety and what I thought I should be and all this shit. And, um, and so that time ended up being this incredibly transformational and beautiful time and all those songs came from it. So I sort of bow at the altar of that time uh, and uh. give that song its due as this thing that sort of vesseled uh, into me and um, so I, I I love that fucking song yeah I just wish I could play it more often I wish that you know in some ways that uh, it could be Jade and I singing it when we do sing it yeah wow that's a really beautiful reflection I really appreciate that and I hear that like yeah the the time in which you create something is like baked into the thing. And then the times that you sing it or the times that you watch it, the times that you interact with it also get baked into the thing. Mm -hmm. So as time goes on, the song imbues the meaning and the time in which it was written and the times in which it was performed and the pain and the relational distress and the beauty. And yeah, that's amazing. That's incredible. And I just can't even imagine like, like that song, like that song has been around the world just like over and over. And like you said, people have been married to it. My fucking neighbors were married to it. Right. You know, they love it. They have it on there. They have it on there. They have like some like, you know, a little painting that says home is wherever I am with you. Right. And I was like, oh, like you love that song. They're like, yeah, we got married to that song. I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. So I can't, I can't even imagine creating something that has had such a scope and has had such a, such a wide recognition. That's incredible. And it's also interesting what you said about how people can have a funny relationship to it. Oh, not that fucking song again. Come on, change the song. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there's another relationship to it. This is interesting. And I, and I wonder how, I wonder if you've experienced this. I don't know to what extent your stunts, your triumphs are replicable by others in your mind. But um, after home came out, this was interesting. This was like, this brings us back to cool for a second in my own sort of like neuroses. Home because starts to be this really big hit. 
and sure Mumford and Son and oh really just Mumford and Son. like there was there like you know this folk pop thing started to happen mm-hmm. after our album came out and um, and you had bands like uh, the Lumineers and of Monsters and Men and um, Lumineers literally went to the same guy who had tried to help us produce our shit because they liked our album. So they told me. And, um, and he, uh, in an article, said, they asked, how did the Lumineers come up with the Hey Ho song? And he's like, well, you know, I was just like thinking about like, what would be cool here? And it's like, oh, how about some like, hey, oh, that would be cool. It's like, motherfucking, are you kidding me with this lie? Like, we brought our shit into you already done, and you couldn't even mix our stuff, and we had to take our songs away. But anyway, he was privy to our process in uh-huh. which my, I had gotten the haze and hose from Morricone, Ennio Morricone. <laughs> like, those soundtracks that was my inspiration right there was you know and and anyway so that band comes out then monsters and men comes out with a song that is so identical to home that when it got on an apple commercial people are calling me congratulations i mean no way literally you can sing it's called dirty paws or some shit um you can sing home over that song like perfectly um and their manager was our agent and she had her album before it came out. And so like, suddenly these songs, now, now here's one caveat. If they had been made, if these albums had been made in really rugged, like raw ways where they had been making it themselves like we did on tape, not knowing what they're doing, it sounded like it was a garage recording like our album did. I, I would have had a lot more forgiveness, but instead they were much slicker reproductions of our of what we had been working on. So suddenly now they're all over the radio and we get to our album number two and I have a song that's a fucking hit, but it's basically a follow-up to home. Uh-huh. Now at this point, Monsters and Men had already done this like full-blown mock-up of home where it's like, do, 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 blah, 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 and then a boy, and then a horn break in the bridge. And I'm like having a fucking identity crisis. And I have this song that is a follow, like a follow up to home. It's me and Jay doing our, our thing, and it's a four on the floor, and it's, it's beautiful. And I say, fuck it. And I, I commit seppuku. I say, we're not putting it on the album. Fuck this. I'm not repeating. I'm not repeating my trick in the in 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 a sea of tricks that have been. Rep- I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be them repeating me. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Um, I suddenly felt like I would be them repeating me. Huh. So I didn't put it on, and um, the album came out. It went to like number four, um, and then dropped off the face of the earth. Last year, my manager found that song and he sent it to me. And he's like, he just sent it to me, didn't say anything. I played it and it's amazing. And I write back, we should have put this on the album. Hmm. Like, yeah, no shit. The lesson in there is that I got too 
I got too, their status anxiety goes the other way uh-huh. where I got too cool. Uh, I didn't want to be thought of, again, it was status anxiety, but for the sake of cool. It's like, I didn't want to be thought of as someone else out there trying to capitalize on myself. And so I for, I forewent, um, you know, putting, put, I didn't want to capitalize on myself. It, it's like someone saying, do that trick again, period. Um, do your famous thing again. You go to a party and they're like, you know, do that famous thing again. It's like, again, that sort of repetition of successes. That said, there's something about, there's something about potential that does not like being compressed into a brand. Uh-huh. You know, when your band becomes a brand, it starts to, you know, brand is based on repetition across, across time. It's based on redundancy. Yes. And I just didn't want to fall into that trap. And so for better or for worse, I didn't. And at the same time, I wish that I, you know, had put that song on because if I was just being a child, a five-year-old person, yes. and I just was living based on like what I loved, I would have put the fucking song on. Yeah. So I'm a little, I'm a little bummed at my, but you know, it's lessons learned and whatnot. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, a couple things come up for me there. One is this fucking, I've like made this analogy a lot of times in the past, which is that you always want to aim for the bullseye and you don't want to aim away from the not bullseye. So, you always <laughs> want to aim for the bullseye and you never want to, wait, say it again. You always want to aim for the bullseye. You don't want to let your aim be pushed by other factors because you never know when the bullseye is actually right next to not bullseye. Yes, exactly. You never want to aim for the not bullseye. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's brilliant. I like that. Yeah, exactly. Keep your, keep your, keep your state pure somehow. Um, Yeah. But I wonder is, is the problem there in the creative process that you're in the feedback loop of the industry itself, because the industry sounds incestuous and it almost, I wonder if by creating home that blew up, you actually make a feedback loop in the psyches of the populace that then want more of that thing that they really liked. And so everyone else jumps on to provide that thing. Yes. All exa- all accurate. <laughs> and then by finding, by like, keeping yourself in the industry and knowing what other people are doing, you almost like you let your aim be pushed off of what was the bullseye that you would have created naturally, as you say, like a five-year-old. Your, your, your instinct starts to get diluted. And the, Uh and the only, and the, what it's very, it's very clear when you have an instinct that points you at something that is not currently being done wide, like widespread, you can trust that instinct because it's not necessarily or it's not obviously being uh, steered by uh, the, the, the cultural preferences of the day. Mm-hmm. When everybody is doing something, everybody's wearing a yellow dress, can you mm. be sure that when you think you want to wear the yellow dress that it's not actually a desire that's been infested with the desires of others? And I think that that's the shaky ground that I felt like I was on. Uh-huh. And, and felt like I ha- had to, um, you know, and essentially it makes you end up suffering from like vanguardism. I used to ask myself with Edward Sharp, if everybody 
if I'm spreading earnestness, like that, that, that was my cause really. It was like being earnest because everything was ironic. And I was like, fuck it. The most punk rock shit I can do is be earnest. So in some sense, what I was doing immediate, like from the get go was this asymmetrical uh, venture. I was like, what is everybody not doing? And what do I need personally mm-hmm. as a human? I had been become so encrusted in irony and sarcasm and rock and roll snarling that I, I knew what I needed. And that's what I thought back to when I was five. I was like, okay, my five-year-old me was earnest. So that's what I'm gonna do. But I also knew in the back of my head that that was the most socially asymmetrical thing I could have possibly done. Therefore, in my mind, the most punk rock thing I could do was to be earnest and loving and, and like, hey. And, and I got shit for it from all of the guardians of, uh, of, of rock and roll because for that very fact. But I asked myself, if everybody started being earnest, would I keep being earnest? Uh-huh. Would that still be your bullseye? Yeah. Or would I, because now my job, you know, there's a certain like my job is done here, on to the next horizon. But, um, but that takes away a certain purity of reason. So, yes. you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's like what, what makes you want to do to set a world record, to, to, to go the extra few feet that nobody else has gone? I don't know. What is it? Exactly. Like, with yourself or is there a, there's, is there a sort of awareness, a sort of like, you know, awareness of the, where others have gone and, uh, and a sense that you want to push the general limit, not just your own. Yeah. That's the idea that it's, often difficult to be able to suss out your own motivations when you're doing something that's fucking objectively rad is very interesting. And I think that, you know, just my own path has led me to kind of realize that maybe when I was 12 and I did my first backflip on skis, it was both that I was like an awesome kid who wanted to push it but also desperately seeking the approval of my brother and his friends, Mm. Mm. which then led to being a double backflip that then led to being (laughs) a backwards double backflip that led to highlining that led to taking my harness off that led to paragliding that led to acrobatic paragliding to paraglide racing to all these different things that have genuinely been so fucking fun and have given my life purpose and enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. right? Like, but have I done it just to get, (laughs) have I done it just, just so that I could be loved, seen, approved of that? I could have some kind of recognition. Do I quit all of my fucking sports now? (laughs) Right. Are they all tainted? But here's the thing. Here's the thing there's this uh there's this little book that was recommended to me by daniel schmachtenberger Mm. not directly but as i listened to him talk about this it's called the way to love by anthony DeMello. and he was like a jesuit mystic teacher and there's a chapter in there that talks about attachment And it talks about dropping attachments. And it 
reassures me as I read it that I could drop the attachment that I have to the thing without having to renounce the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I can purify my motivations for walking across the world's longest slack line. Yeah. Without having to not walk across the world's longest slack line. Yeah. And I can kind of reframe, and I've been actively doing this. And this is like, I have a YouTube channel that teaches paragliding and particularly paragliding philosophy that helps, or my intent is to help bring more earnest and thoughtful awareness to our motivations for paragliding, because so many men get into paragliding for the same reason that I did, which was, am I doing it right? Do you love me? Mm. And so the thing the the shift that I've actually had in my life is basically I started as a freestyle skier, which is just me. That is just me. And then I started highlining, which is pretty me centric as well. But once these things got really fucking long, this is an us game. Right. Cause literally I like uh, I did the American record. It took, it takes 20 of us to rig the damn thing. Right. Right. It takes $10,000 worth of equipment. It's like, it's all distributed through the community. So it's like, I'm blessed to be um, enthusiastic enough and charismatic enough to come up with the plan and convince people to come spend their week in the desert doing this thing. Even, even when the vast majority of those people can't come close to walking across it. Right. So I've started to try to shift my focus from and maybe try is not actually as accurate as I would like to seem. It's been a bit more effervescent that the things that I've been doing as they've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger have just become more team centric. Mm-hmm. And it's a different motivation. It's a different motivation because I find myself more present to the entire process. Mm. Um, I think in the past, I was pretty a bit frantic and a bit um, like I was a leader that was very, I was triggerable in the sense that if you disagreed or if you didn't want to do it, then you were like, harming my chances at being the successful person to walk across it, which I think I've put most of that down. It's still in there somewhere and I find it sometimes, but to be able to kind of like stay present with the process that it's like the whole thing is fun. Like to see the gap and to like imagine a slack line there is fucking incredible. Like that's one of the funnest parts of being like, looking at something and being like, Oh my God, it's possible. And then just like this lightning bolt of fear just gets struck into the center of my being that I'm like, Oh my God. I'm like, uh, it would be so fucking scary to be up there on a one inch wide piece of webbing. Like that would be like, I would barf. And then through the entire process of, of finding the place that the anchors would go, what would we tie it to? How would we do it? How would we get the line across? How would we tension it? Who would we have? Who would the team be? What weather window do we need? Like 
just all this stuff that like kind of goes into like transmuting that like like it's so scary to like like it is possible and it's reverent and it's like beautiful and like like when when i in the spring i set an american record and like literally the first time i got on it it was just like such a grateful moment of like oh my god we fucking we put it there like whether i walk across it without falling down or not i don't give a fuck but oh my god we put it there man we had the dream we saw the place we came together as a team we all had so much fun rigging it it was like windy and raining and fucking i covered the dog with a tarp and and like it was so beautiful and like it's amazing that we all came together that we had like a shared motivation and so there is this like the idea that that if other people are capable of it and it's cool to do that it makes me second guess my own motivations of doing it that's something i really relate to and it's fucking like you called it shaky ground that is shaky ground it's shaky ground i mean what you're describing is basically a band you know that you're the front man of or something and um yeah and, and the you know i don't know to what extent you felt this or you've used their effort as your motivation it's like mm. well shit they all came out here they rigged the thing here i am if i was alone i might be sitting here at the the edge of the uh, the webbing ready to 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 take a step and think now nah, i'll do it tomorrow yeah but everybody's watching you got the cameras everybody said this is the day and now you got to fucking do it that's right um, and um you know and 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 that it, there's a similar vibe with the band you know it's like um mm. one of the hardest things i've done recently is tell the band that i didn't want to tour for a while because they depend on me yeah and um but I, ha I, I, I really, I was struggling with it, but I, I, I just had to do it. I was, I had gotten to a similar point of sort of compression and repetition and brandiness with Edward Sharp and the repetition of Edward Sharp and the repetition of expectation, the repetition of album cycles that um, I knew I just needed to completely clear everything or I was gonna no longer feel the, feel the love for the whole process. Uh -huh. um, lose connection with that intuition as you yeah. called it yeah yeah exactly lose which connection. is interesting you know our mutual friend peter Lindbergh yeah. is like he's the fucking damon jockey he's like one of the things he's written about the most and one of the things that he's inspired me about the most is his connection to the damon or the muse or the inspire or the uh the intuition yeah yeah, and that is... connection is is very. In my experience, you know, the 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 invitation is for the is is to the universe to make you its canvas. It's it's as opposed to mastering life, it's having life master you, mm. and that does not necessarily mean that you're always having life master you, and you're always a blank canvas. But it does mean to sort of exercise a muscle which allows you to let go of everything, to clean the slate. So not so that you can come up with new shit, 
to clean the slate so that it can enter. Because if we don't clean our, and I don't mean clean in some fucking, uh, you know, um, sort of Christian sense. Yeah, puritanical sense. Yeah, puritanical uh, cleanliness of spirit. But I mean, just sort of like um, a cleanliness of, of knowing so that we don't fucking know, so that we can be there you know, the thing that's ended up coming out for me is, is, you know, in my sort of, I don't know, my shrug uh, period here, vesselhood, as I call it, um, is, uh, is bringing me back finally to when, to before I was in any band and mm-hmm. to when I was just an artist living in a loft and I would paint and I would play music and I would write and I had no idea where any of it was going to go. Uh I didn't think about the product. Talk about like a bullseye. I have no, the only bullseye I have is for the muse and the Uh diamond or the daemon. And, and, and that sense of like, you know, asking the universe to sort of master me, to use me as its paintbrush so that Uh I can experience. And then I'll take things that I discover and then, you know, I'll create different goals and I'll try and finish certain projects. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really a clearing. And, and sometimes in my experience, one of the things that I've literally needed or that I've needed to do was literally clear. Literally, either if I'm in a relationship that whatever, or uh, I am touring or uh, like actually create actual space uh-huh. where I actually stop doing things that sustain me or that I think make me who I uh-huh. am um, and just fucking stop and just see what comes. And um, and usually, you know, something, something fucking comes and you end up with the spark again. So it's almost seems to be like this cycle. And sometimes I dream about just staying in a place with the daemon, just staying in a place with the muse where I'm always in that state of vesselhood. And even if something amazing comes up, oh, look at that painting. I don't go, oh, I should make a series of those and put them <laughs> in the gallery. I just go, look at that painting. Interesting. And then the and then here's a piece of philosophy. And I don't know if that piece of philosophy is necessarily going to turn into anything. I just made this thing. You know what? I'll just give this philosophy away. I'm not going to write the book. Um, and just allow all that because then I'd be in this sort of metastable state of vesselhood where the yes. universe is constantly paintbrushing me. Yes. And I think that's beautiful. Me too. But my, you know, we get caught up in, oh, you know what? I'd love to package this, give it a name, compress all the information into it, turn it into a meme so that I can deliver it to people. Now, what is the motivation behind that? Can I really claim that it's just pure sharing, that I just really want to share this information so much that I got Simon and Schuster to put the book out for me? Or could I just make a website, put the ideas up there? To what extent is my ego involved? To what extent does that process inevitably lead to a consolidation of, of self that compresses into a meme such that, fuck, I have to break the whole thing open again uh-huh. and stop and quit and leave the band or stop this. And so for me so far, it's a process of freeing myself, consolidating into a brand, freeing myself, consolidating. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean I'm a brand, but it just means if I'm giving something a name, if I'm doing these things, the motivation behind them, I can't discount the capitalistic intent. I can't discount the soup yeah. that I'm in. Um, and, you know, that bothers me to a certain extent. Um, but, 
you know, I, I also at the same time think that ego has its purposes. I love the, your story about trying to impress your, your, your brother. My dad called me a fucking idiot when I was a kid. You know, like he was just like, wanted to send me to a trade school. In hindsight, it would have been really fun. But, uh, but I, the way he presented it was like, you're dumb and you need to go to trade school because you can't work with your brain. And um, I was like 14 and it crushed me. I was like, fuck this guy. I, you know, I, I was a bad student on purpose in my mind. I had this whole sort of like psychology behind the erroneous sort of like teachings of school and yada, yada. But um, I took that, I got, I got really hurt by that. And later on started, once I was able to get out of school, out of high school, um, I started being an autodidact. I started just learning myself and, and in some ways proving to myself, but also to him that I was a genius. You know what I mean? That I, I'm so smart that he couldn't possibly comprehend the level that I was sort of vibrating at. And, you know, to this day, I talk about that when, I, when I'm in uh, somatic therapy, um, where it's like, you know, to what extent is this being engined along by my fuck you to my dad? Um, and yet, how fucking grateful am I that uh, that, that all happened? Uh -huh. How grateful are you that your brother was, uh, that you were trying to impress your brother? You know, I mean, this is this is the stuff that- Yeah, I, ref I, refer, I refer to these things as sweet wounds. Sweet wounds, I love it. You're like, oh, that's my big trauma. That made me awesome. Yeah, exactly. This is interesting. So the thing that comes up for me here is you talk about this, this like consolidation and then breaking apart and then consolidation. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I was sitting through a session with Benita Roy. Have you experienced yeah, her? But yeah, no. God, she's such a fucking galaxy brain. I just like so recommend everyone and their mom to fucking listen to some Benita Roy. She's just incredibly smart and just so succinct she's basically laying out like all the different dimensions of human development to your your most uh, highest potentiated self and in this idea of like your psychological self in the beginning the most foundational model is essentially mine that that is mine that the, the, my, the body is mine that that thing is mine animals have this right dogs like have fucking their toy you know mine 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 then the next oh, mine m-i-n-e correct okay and then the next step is me me and the me is the role self that is the role self that is the that is when we get an identity given to us by our family or our society that we kind of identify with mm -hmm. and we play that role that is the mask of alex ebert right so she says that 80 to 90% of Western civilization individuals never develop outside of this me conception of themselves, that for their entire lives, they just live the role that they are given, that they identify with. They hold on to that for their entire lives. The next level is the I, where it's actually, you're beginning to actually individuate. It starts with a pretty narcissistic energy that you have to kind of uh, give yourself space, give yourself energy, focus on yourself so that you can develop yourself. Mm. I hear this, this, um, this thing is like when you're actually individuated and you have this I energy, 
the products or the artifacts that you're creating, whether that be a song or a band or a style or an album, you create that out of the individual I, but you calcify it back down to the me, this like role self that you're like, okay, I am willing to inhabit this like role self for some time. But knowing that ultimately I'm going to have to crack that, let go of it and move back into the eye to find the next iteration of myself. Yeah. I like, I like that description. I, I'm typically hesitant of, uh, Uh, so individuation and individuality for me are, are subjects that, you know, are very loaded um, with uh, sort of capitalism and atomism and new ageism. Mm -hmm. and I create my own reality and all of this sort of like late capitalist sort of um, spiritualization. But, um, but I like the idea that, um, I mean, I, I, first of all, I just love the shape of the eye because it is a vessel. It's just a straight line and things can ingress and sort of you can have a, um, a, 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 a toroidal sort of like energy sort of mm -hmm. shuffling through the, the tube of the eye. Um, and, and everything you're saying is, makes sense to me. I mean, the idea of, you know, then um, compressing it down to, to a calcified me, which it would be the brand, this is me, this is who I am. Um, the individuation from the collective uh, as the eye um, and as necessary uh, for the vessel hooding, for the for the for the daemon, for the for the musing, um, I think also makes sense if it's in the context of um, I and the universe. Like the, I, I'm I'm separating so that I can. It's sort of a monkish sort of I in my in my experience where. Yes, I'm, I'm individuating, but what I'm individuating from um, is, or I'm individu individuating towards God, yes. for lack of a better word, uh -huh. um, so that I can have, Leonard Cohen has this great line, like, um, you know, I love to live with you, but you make me forget so very much. I forget to pray for the angels, and then the angels forget to pray for us. Then this idea that by being together, Mm -hmm. We end up sort of replacing or supplanting our relationship that would otherwise be with God or the universe uh, with someone else. And this suffices over here and the, mm -hmm. the community and the thing and the apparatus and the job and the me, the identity that all suffices. Um, but when you're alone and you're just floating in the middle of fucking the ocean or you're in the desert alone, or you just feel alone, the, the natural place to go is to God or to the universe. And so you end up with this, if the, if you mean the I in that sense, then that's, then that's, then that's really beautiful. And that, and it is interesting because it does carry this narcissistic sort of like, I need to talk to God <laughs> because it's important. It's like, why do you got to go? You're doing the thing here. It's like, because it's fucking important. There's some sort of like egoic necessity uh -huh. to communing with the universe um, to ask the universe for fucking hints or clues or tell you what your meaning is in that moment. And so, yeah, I, I like all that. Yeah. I also, there's another thing that you said that the idea that instead of trying to clean your life or practice or 
surroundings so that you could come up with new shit. You're actually cleaning and purifying as a means to like be a more readily be a conduit for things to come into you or emerge out of you. And I just love that fucking idea because it seems to me just objectively truer that our nature as complexity, as our nature as like fractal complex creatures in a complex thing that's part of a complex thing, you know, this like holonic nature of ourselves to see it as emergent, to see like creativity as emergent, to see our nature as emergent is just like, it seems objectively truer and it seems like a better model for ourselves and our creativity. And there is some like, I think the prioritization because from mine to me to I is actually before us. Like you actually have to go through that, those stages to even be able to commune with a larger group at all. Mm. And so there is like a narcissistic energy that needs to come to purify your space, your energy, your practice, your life, so that you can actually commune with the next thing, which might be one other person, a group of people, a tribe, a community, a culture, a planet, a fucking species, like all these increasing layers all the way to cosmological consciousness. So the idea that you would think of yourself as a complex conduit, that things that creativity emerges out of you is such a beautiful and seemingly more apt analogy for what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's also my experience um, that uh, when I write a great song, it's a discovery. It's not a right. It's not a process of writing. It's a process of it's celestial archaeology. It's like what's celestial archaeology. You're fucking chipping away the dirt and dusting off yeah. the bones. It's just like, what's this thing? Does this go here? Is this is this fine? Lake bone. If you animate this this thing properly, it ends up flying off, and you're like, "Holy shit! Look at that thing!" The fucking um, pterodactyl. It was already, a, yeah, yeah, and and it's um it's it's genuinely my experience. It's like that's wow. the, that's the feeling that I get when I hear a song of mine that I think, and there's only there's very few, by the way, but when I write a song that I think is is amazing, the experience is uh, one of awe. Mm. In that I, in that I can't identify myself as the author, mm. um, where I'm like, how how did that happen? There's almost an mm. immaculate sense to it, but the but the but the excavation process, yeah, is this sort of celestial archaeology. God, that tastes great. God, that tastes so good. And I've experienced those moments too. When I walk across the High Line, I cannot say right arm down, left foot out, bend left knee. It's like, right, right, no, right. it's a fucking, it's my monkey brain. It's an embedded yeah. part of me that has evolved over millions of years that I just like, that I get out of the way of. And the experience that I was telling you that I had on that high line the other night was that uh, it was two years ago that we rigged a high line in Canada twice as long as that two kilometer world record. And 
I thought I could, and I really wanted to, and I wanted like, it was like egoically. I was like, I'm going to fucking be the world record holder, but I didn't actually know if I could or not. It was very much on the edge. It was like, you know, two and a half times longer than anything I'd ever seen. I fell 300 meters from the end in front of a whole crowd. I fell. I wasn't the world record holder. There's 30 of us who tried. There was two of us who made it without falls and I wasn't one of them. But the other night on this American record, I like had this really deeply embodied, like it was almost like my body knew that it could walk across it. Mm. And so like, I was just relaxed and chilled out. I was like, I had this like fucking like jazz deep house set on and I was just fucking blissed out and just chilling. And there were like big sections in the middle that were like, I swear to God, it was as easy to walk across the slack line as it was the fucking sidewalk. And it was like, my heart rate was low. I wasn't like trying too hard. I gave zero fucks. And just my monkey body was like super there and had this like deep sense of belief, but also kind of like surrender. And celestial archaeology yeah like uncovering just like what is possible of a human body and it's like i get the same kind of sense of awe when i watch my buddies walk across it. i'm like holy fuck man you can walk across that thing like that's just awe-inspiring it's incredible it's like so beautiful and yeah. i i get a similar sense of reverence when it's my body or when it's kieran's body yeah yeah, and, and and isn't it amazing? I mean, I I I get a sense of you as a larger you, sort of, a, mm. you know, as a larger I, um, because and I didn't even witness it, but by knowing that you did that, right? You you gain aura, uh -huh. right? And you're and 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 you gain my awe, and um, and what's fun about that whole process is if we're humble enough, we gain our own awe. And it's not a it's not a process of of e e egoic. It's actually the inverse. I, I've walked into giant um, uh, uh, state, you know, um, arenas, and looked around and just been like had the opposite of an egoic sort of like Napoleon is here sort of feeling where I'm just like, wow, these people are gonna come to see us. This is amazing. Yes. I'm so fucking floored yeah. by this um, that, you know, it's like when you have, when, when you have true self reverence, mm. um, it's, it's the most humbling thing ever because you basically end up being a witness to yourself. Yes. And when you describe this process, it's almost like you're witnessing yourself do it. Uh -huh. And then in, and retroactively, in thinking about yourself and looking at the slack line and being like, wow, I did that. There's sort of like you gain this aura that humbles us. And I've mm. never understood people that gain immense success and had it uh, turned into full-blown ego play. I, do, I don't understand how immense success could do anything other than humble you. Um, I really don't. Like, I'm not saying that like naively, like I, I don't get it. Because my experience is that the more, the more magnificence you're able to achieve, or the the, the more, the more a moment like that occurs, um, the more, the more of a sort of a witness state, the more of a, um, 
the larger you become and the smaller me becomes. So that your me is witnessing I, and I is this sort of like has overgrown me and um, and diminished me, uh, thankfully. And um, and yeah, there's sort of this wonder to the whole thing. That's yeah. a, such a beautiful. That's such a beautiful articulation there and the in immediately as you started talking about the the delineation that came online was the difference between awe and pride mm. right yeah, like exactly right like exactly. if it that's that's what it is pride so, versus awe. yeah to have off of yourself versus to be proud of yourself is a very yeah. different thing <laughs> yeah. you know what's funny about pride i love being proud of other people uh -huh. Like, I love being proud of my daughter. I love being proud of anyone. I'm proud of you. Um, it's an interesting thing, pride. And, and they'll be like, why are you proud? You know, like, um, and other people, if they're proud of me, like, there's some sort of ownership and it feels weird to me. Yes. But I like spreading my proudness. <laughs> um, that maybe that's something I still need to evolve through. But I don't, I, my intuition, Alex, with that is that the concept of pride there or telling someone that I'm proud of you is just your best estimation for the feeling that you have. That's not actually pride sure. because I think that as you receive it from someone else, they're like, I'm so proud of you. Cause I taught you how to play the guitar and now you're a fucking musician, yeah. right? Like, like um, I used to be a freestyle ski coach and I coached like the kids that were the fucking bomb. And now like a couple of them have won the X games and I wrote them. I'm like, my God, I am so fucking happy for you i'm so over the moon for you man like wow you worked so hard you you fucking wow that's so rad and then i noticed another coach was like i'm so proud of you i i taught i remember when i taught you how to do this thing and i'm like ah that's like a very different that comes yeah, from a very different a place dork. yeah <laughs> you said the better thing i'm so happy for you i'm celebrating with you and the you know yeah they land very differently don't they they do yeah, and I agree that I've that's kind of a slippery slope. Pride in general, whether I feel proud of myself or proud of another person, is something that I um, through was brought to my awareness through nonviolent communication. As I kind of like learned that um, it was like pride is not that high of a human emotion. So there's probably some other word that I can express that's semantically better. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't spent much time thinking about what what's. But I think happiness. I think celebration, joy. Yeah. I feel. I feel. I feel you. I love in Spanish "lo siento." It means uh -huh. sorry, but it just means I feel you. Yeah. Um, I use it for sorry, but I think that it's. I it's feel, actually "lo siento" is I feel it. I feel it. it. Yeah, I feel it. You like tell me something, I say "lo siento," man. I feel that. Like, I feel that. but but I don't see why that can't be used in the positive. Oh, I feel it. I feel this. Uh huh. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's it's empathy. It's the, you know that's feeling someone else's um, whatever they're feeling. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's some discussion as to whether empathy is actually possible, but um, but of course it is. You know, whether we can actually feel the feel someone else. You know, that one day they will discover the sort of neural network. Um, blooms far beyond sort of uh, the corpse yeah. and, um, and interacts with all the other neural networks. Yeah. I, I really, I really think that. That's the expansion of our consciousness from the mind to the me, to the we, to the, yeah. yeah. Larger self. That's right. 
Well, yeah. it's been so fun talking to you. I really appreciate your time. And Likewise. it's been great to kind of dig into this, this creative muse conversation as well as it's been wonderful to share with you my experience of it and be seen. It's felt amazing. Well, thanks so much, Ari. I've appreciated this conversation. And, uh, yeah, hope you have a good rest of the day. I know you're, you're up to some stuff uh, later that, uh, you know, lo siento. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. We'll do it again soon. Cool. I'll send you the link. Cheers. Rest up, buddy. See you later. All right. Bye. Okay, guys. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Bathing with Alex Ebert. You don't get that every day. So consider supporting this podcast. That's patreon.com slash area in the air. You can do it for as little as $5 a month. And I give my top tier patrons free coaching calls with me. So we will see you on the next episode. Got a fucking banger lined up for you. AJ Bond, the shame educator. He's coming on next. Thanks for listening. See you in the next episode.
day you fell out of my window. I sure do, you came jumping out after me. Well, you fell on the concrete, nearly broke your ass, and you were bleeding all over the place, and I rushed you out to the hospital, you remember that? Yes, I do. Well, there's something I never told you about that night. What did you tell me? While you were sitting in the back seat, smoking a cigarette, you thought it was going to be your last. I was falling.